Today we bring this series that I've called Real Life to a close. And a lot of times uh, a series is sort of like a book for me. I'm excited to begin it and I enjoy it while I'm in it. And I'm glad when it's over because it's time to move on to something else. But this series has been a little bit different for me. I really hate to see this week come because it's been important to me as we've shared in these stories that come from the Gospel of John. And I really hate to see this series end because it's just been good for me to get into these stories and then to have the opportunity to share them with you. Now, we've talked about the the purpose for the Gospel of John because John lays that out so clearly in this Gospel in a way that we don't see, honestly, in some of the other Gospels. And we pointed to that at the very beginning of the series The odd thing is, John gives his purpose at the end of the book. And so we read that in chapter 20, and we're going to be in chapter 20 today. He says this in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones that he has written, are written that you may believe. You may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I'm writing this to convince you of something. And so that's what we've been looking through. John convincing us of two truths. The first, Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one. We said that Messiah is the same word as Christ. One is Hebrew, the other is Greek, and we might translate them anointed one or even king. Okay, so Jesus is king. John wants us to see that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. That God had been planning this from the beginning. That God was at work in the life of Jesus even before he was born. And he would bring salvation to his people and ultimately to all people. He's writing so that we'll know that. He's also writing so that we'll know that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus has a relationship with God that no one else has. In fact, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. And so he's written this all the way through the gospel. These two things, he wants us to see Jesus is king, Jesus is the son of God, that we might have life, real life. An understanding that life can last for eternity, an understanding that Jesus changes eternity, but Jesus changes us in the here and now as well. And that powerful truth we've been carrying through all of these stories from the Gospel of John, sort of flying over really high, seeing the large scope of the story, and dropping in at certain places to hear Jesus speak, to see Jesus do something. And over this uh, course of the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus teach, and we've heard Him perform miracles. In John, they're called signs, and we've said there are seven of those, and they increase in their power and awesomeness from turning water to wine, ultimately to raising Lazarus from the dead. And each one of those designed to show us who Jesus is. And we've heard Jesus say several times, I am thee, comparing himself ultimately to God, but revealing his nature to us. Again, showing us that he is Messiah, the Son of God. Today we come to the end of the story. A story that I think in many ways ties all of this together. A story that in some ways as well is pretty familiar to us. We usually talk about it at Easter, the resurrection story. But today I want us to think about how this brings so many of the themes that we've been talking about together as we bring this series to a close and think about the real life that is offered to us. Now, last week, Zach preached and he taught us about the the crucifixion. 
And he said that the point of the crucifixion, and I thought this was great, is that love has the final word. Maybe you remember him saying that. Love has the final word. When, when death seems to be so powerful, when cruelty and hate seem like they are winning, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus went to the cross not because of the hate of the people around him, but because of his love for us and for them. So as we think about the next steps, what do they mean? If love has the final word, why does the rest of the story matter? Zach left off where Jesus was being buried. Jesus is actually dead. Really dead. Life has left his physical body. And he's buried. And we know that the disciples went through that Saturday. Burial would have been immediate. They took him down from the cross. They took him to the tomb and they buried him. But because it's the Sabbath, they can't really do anything that they would normally do for a dead body. So we have Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And Mary Magdalene is the first one to go. And she goes to the tomb carrying spices and she gets there and it's not what she expected. The stone has been rolled away from the opening of the tomb, which was probably like a cave. And she sees that that stone is not where it should be. And that, and that sends all kinds of signals to her that something is amiss. And she looks in, and there is no body. Now what's striking in the story that John tells is there's a whole lot of running. And so Mary Magdalene takes off and she runs to where the disciples are and she reports this news. The tomb is empty. Somebody must have taken the Lord. Verse 2 of chapter 20. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put Him. Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved that we we believe is John himself. They hear the news first. The tomb is empty. Where is Jesus' body? And so Mary has run to them, and then they take off running. And John just wants to remind us that he runs faster than Peter, right? We get that little detail in this story. And he got there first. And he saw the same thing that Mary saw. The stone is rolled away. And he peers in to see that there is no body. Peter finally catches up and he just runs right past John, right into the tomb. And there's the, there's the grave clothes, those strips of cloth that they would have wound around a dead body. They've been taken off. And John makes a point of, of us knowing that and that even the cloth that was over Jesus' face has been folded up and placed neatly probably on a ledge of rock where the body would have been. Why is John so worried about the grave clothes, we might wonder? Why does that matter? It mattered to John because I think John is showing us this is not the, the robbery of a grave. This is not somebody coming in and stealing a dead body, because if it were, they wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to unwrap the body, to, to sort of fold everything up neatly and nicely and place it there. They would have just taken the body and gone. That's not what happened. 
what happened is something miraculous. What happened is the power of God is at work in this. That Jesus has been raised from the dead. So Peter and John go back to where everyone is. But Mary Magdalene stayed at the tomb. And not surprisingly, she's in tears. Now, John tells us that that when they saw the empty tomb, they believed. What did they believe? They believed Jesus has been raised, I guess. I mean, it's a little hard because they're, they're piecing all this together, right? They haven't witnessed Jesus alive yet. They've just seen an empty tomb. But Mary is trying to put all these pieces together. What does this mean? And so she's in tears. And we read this down in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she'd been over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And as I read that, what it reminds me of is a scene from the Old Testament. If you went in the tabernacle, the tent, the holy place, the most holy place, or into the temple that was built and also had a most holy place, one of the things you would find there was the Ark of the Covenant. This box that held some of the the holy things like manna and Aaron's staff and, and things that reminded the people of Israel of God's salvation to them. And on either end of this Ark were cherubim that had been formed and covered in gold. And this was, in many ways, sort of the, the throne of God for the people of Israel a place that they could not go except for the high priest once a year because it was so holy. It was the dwelling place of God. And here we've got this slab with an angel at either end where Jesus' body had lain. I can't imagine a place that is any holier than that. And that is the place where Jesus' life returned to him. It is as if they are in the most holy place. And the angels ask, Mary, why are you crying? She's upset because she doesn't know what's happened to Jesus' body. Maybe someone has stolen the body. She doesn't have a full explanation for what's going on. And then she turns and she encounters a man. Well, She wasn't expecting that. And at this point, she doesn't recognize that man, and she assumes that he's the gardener. This is in a garden, and she assumes this is a caretaker, and and maybe he's the guilty party. Maybe he's taken the body of Jesus. This is what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, It's not a gardener. It's Jesus. And and all he says is her name. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabbi, which means teacher. It seems that Jesus' resurrection body was the same, and yet it was different. 
And so people sometimes recognize Jesus immediately, and sometimes it takes them a moment to recognize this is Jesus. They see the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, and they know this is the Jesus who was crucified. It took Mary a minute. But what did it was when Jesus called her name. And it reminds me of what Jesus says way back in chapter 10. He says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mary could follow because she knew his voice. Because he called her by name. Because she was important to Jesus. Not just that humanity was important, which it was, but that she as an individual was important. And she knew him because he called her name. Jesus says, don't hang on to me. Things are changing. He points to the ascension that's to come. This is not going to last very long. And at that, Mary goes back to the disciples. And here's another one of those details that points to the fact that this really happened. And it really happens the way that the Gospel writers describe it. Because Mary goes back and she comes to where the disciples are staying and she is the first person to announce that Jesus has been raised from the dead. A woman. In a day and time when women were not trusted enough to to testify in court, when it was assumed that women could be fooled so easily that, that you couldn't trust them to relay the facts, the Gospel writers remind us that it is a woman who announces Jesus' resurrection the very first time. If they were making this up, it would never have been Mary. The grave clothes, the announcement from Mary. We could go on and on, look at the other gospel accounts over and over. They, they point to the fact that this story wasn't made up to satisfy some desire that the disciples had to, to prop Jesus up. But that it really happened. That Jesus really was raised from the dead. John gives us another story. The disciples are gathered together in a room. There's probably some fear there. Remember, Jesus has just been crucified, right? The authorities are out for Jesus and presumably out for those who followed him. They've locked the door, bolted it shut, and suddenly Jesus is in the room. The door never opened. It was never unlocked. He's just there. He's with them. And he's with them physically. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. Shalom, it would be in Hebrew. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. He gave them his wind, which is the same word for spirit that shows up. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus is preparing to leave them. 
He has promised them over the last few weeks and even throughout his ministry that when he was gone, they would not be left alone. That God's Spirit would dwell in them. And in this moment, it all begins. They receive this gift of God's Spirit present among them. Jesus was preparing to leave, preparing to be ascended into heaven. Now, that's the, that's the outline of the story. And my guess is, for virtually everyone in the room, none of it's news. You've heard this before. You know this story. But what does it mean? I mean, if, if Jesus had died and then the disciples had some spiritual experience... Maybe they thought they heard from Jesus or Jesus appeared sort of like a ghost or a spirit. Wouldn't that have been enough? I don't think it would have. The only way to understand the significance of Jesus' resurrection for me is to think about what happens, what happened if, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. I mean, we know what happens because he, he was raised from the dead, but if he had not been raised from the dead, how would that change things? I can tell you how it would change things. Because there were lots of people among the Jews who claimed to be the Messiah. My guess is you can't name one of them. And why is that? Rome took a lot of them out because they didn't like anybody who claimed to be king. Now, if we sift through history and, and records of people who wrote in that day and time, we will find the names of several people who said, I am the Messiah, or someone else said, this person is the Messiah. But guess what? They were killed, or they eventually died, and they sort of disappear from history. The only reason we even study them is because of Jesus. Because Jesus was the Messiah. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Jesus' name just sort of disappears into the history books just like all of those other people who claim to be Messiah. I mean, why would Jesus' disciples risk their lives? Why would some of them give their lives for a story they knew was a lie? Why would they make this stuff up and then give up their livelihood, leave their homes, and again, choose to risk imprisonment and death if it didn't really happen? Why would they develop a community of people who were invested and served because they believed Jesus was raised from the dead? The truth is, it would never have happened. Unless the resurrection happens, then the rest, the rest is gone. If there was no resurrection of Jesus, then we're not in this room today. If there was no resurrection of Jesus, this room doesn't exist today. You might put it this way. If Jesus wasn't raised, we wouldn't be here. Oh, we might be alive, we might still have life, but we wouldn't be here worshiping Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be here worshiping God. We might not know God at all. 
We might be following some other religion. Because Jesus was raised, a Christian community formed. People spent their lives serving Jesus, affirming that yes, in the end, love has the final word. But that was confirmed because Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, it confirms all that we've been talking about. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, does that water-to-wine story matter? No, it doesn't. All that Jesus did and said are confirmed in the fact that he was raised from the dead, and it changes everything. It changes our lives here. It changes eternity. It changed history. It created the church. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we're gathered here today. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, love does have the final word. It's this final piece of the puzzle that brings the whole story that John is telling together. And so at the end of the chapter, he can say, man, I wrote this down for a reason. And here's why I wrote it down. I've wanted to show you who Jesus was. That he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And that he changes life. Here and now, and for eternity. So it all matters. Turning water to wine. I'm the bread of life. Feeding thousands of people. Healing people. Giving sight to the blind. Raising Lazarus from the dead. It all matters because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we, as the people of God, are called to take this story and orient our lives around this man. This man called Jesus. This man who was put on a cross and killed and was raised from the dead. And we're called to do that because of just what John has been trying to convince us of from the beginning. He's the king. He's the son of God. And it leaves us with a decision. A decision we make to follow Jesus and a decision we make every day. Am I going to follow Jesus in all that I do today? Because... He was raised from the dead. He's the king. And he's God's son. Let's pray together. Now we're thankful for John. That he wrote all this down for us. In order to show us all that you did through Jesus. Uh, We give you thanks for it. We're thankful that You chose to send your son to make sure love had the final word and then you raised him so that we could be sure of who he was. To be sure of the victory that he had over death and that you offer us over death. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.